Gentlemen, start your engines for today's Golden Girls Sports. Marcus Allen. Mike Tyson. Extra innings. The tight end decoys, so it looks like we're running a draw play. Magic Johnson. Bobby Oh, Tampa Bay Bucks. And they're off! The pig takes the lead! The chicken... The Bloom is Off the Rose premiered on January 5th, 1991, the 13th episode of the show's sixth season. It was written by Philip Jason Lasker and directed by Matthew Diamond. While Blanche is dating an abusive jerk named Rex, and Sophia spends her nights doing jigsaw puzzles with Dorothy, Rose and her longtime boyfriend Miles are stuck in a rut. Miles' idea of a good time is checking out a thimble museum, and Rose can't help but remember the times she had with her late husband Charlie, which never seemed boring. In a conversation about their predicament, Miles says he loves Rose, and sure, he'd jump out of an airplane for her. Little does he realize, she wasn't kidding. At the skydiving class, Miles is scared shitless. And before getting on the plane, he and Rose have another heart-to-heart. Well, what, what about all those other great things you two did? Camping, tennis, boating? All the time. Well, maybe only once. <laughs> See, Charlie had this unnatural fear. Of what? Camping, tennis, boating. Rose, don't you see? You're remembering the way it never was. Then you're expecting me to compete with it. That's not true. Listen, Rose, I I can't fight a ghost. See, Charlie's not only dead, he's much younger. (laughs) Look, Rose, you know I'm nuts about you, but I shouldn't have to prove it by jumping out of an airplane. I'm over 60. Well, so is Paul Newman, and he still races cars. Rose, I don't want to be compared with Charlie, and I sure as hell don't want to be compared with Paul Newman. Although I got to tell you, I do make a better salad dressing. Finding out that old Charlie never went skydiving, Miles suddenly decides to give it a whirl. The good news is that two episodes later, in Miles to Go, his broken legs were all healed up, and he was walking around like nothing ever happened. If the skydiving instructor looks familiar, it might be because you saw him on another episode of The Golden Girls. Actor Don Meralt also played the piano player at the Rusty Anchor in Season 7's Journey to the Center of Attention. Matthew Diamond followed Terry Hughes as the show's regular director after Season 5, and helmed the majority of the episodes of The Golden Girls' sixth season. His background was as a dancer, and he performed both in the United States and abroad before becoming a choreographer and opening his own dance studio in the late 70s and early 80s. But after serving as a choreographer on movies Splits and Maxi in 1984 and 85, Diamond transitioned to directing, overseeing an episode of soap opera Guiding Light and TV movie Life is a Banquet in the subsequent years. After that, it was on to sitcoms for much of the next two decades, of which The Golden Girls was just one classic he had a hand in. Designing Women, Family Ties, and Dear John were other titles he shot episodes for. He's continued to direct following his time with the girls, helming shows like Scrubs, That's So Raven, Gilmore Girls, and Jane the Virgin. But he never forgot his dancing roots, and also directed the 2015 TV movie of The Wiz Live, broadcast specials from the Metropolitan Opera House and Lincoln Center in New York, and episodes of So You Think You Can Dance. Writer Philip Jason Lasker wrote an episode of Barney Miller in 1982, 
and followed producer Danny Arnold to his short-lived Peter Boyle-starring sitcom Joe Bash in 1986. The Bloom is Off the Rose was the last of five episodes of The Golden Girls that Lasker wrote. The first was Dancing in the Dark, Miles' first appearance on the show, which we'll talk about again in a little bit. Lasker spent over 50 episodes as one of the show's producers, and also wrote the 2001 film The Man from Elysian Fields, starring Andy Garcia, Mick Jagger, and Juliana Margulies. It was a different movie from a different era that made Paul Newman a devoted race car driver throughout the second half of his incredible life. By the time he began production on Winning, a 1969 movie directed by James Goldstone, Paul Newman had been a professional actor for 20 years and one of Hollywood's biggest stars for over a decade. At 46 years old, Newman was box office gold, a four-time Oscar nominee and one of the most famous people on the planet. Winning was one of two movies Newman starred in in 1969. The other was Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And while that movie established his relationships with co-star Robert Radford and director George Roy Hill, Winning would help Newman discover his second passion, racing. To prepare for their roles as drivers that are rivals on the track and for the affections of co-star Joanne Woodward, Newman's real-life wife, Newman and Robert Wagner studied under champion driver Bob Bondurant. Newman loved the experience and filmed many of the movie's racing scenes himself. Although winning wasn't a hit and disappeared from the American consciousness pretty quickly, Newman had been bit hard by the racing book. He told ESPN's John Oriovich in 2004, quote, I had a great deal of fun filming winning, but I never really had a chance to stretch my legs out and find out what I could do in a car. It actually took me three years of rearranging my schedule before I could find time to get my license and everything. After that, I never did a film between April and September or October. Racing was all I did, end quote. For the rest of his life, Paul Newman lived three alter egos. He was a huge movie star, starring in The Sting, Slapshot, and a hundred other movies, each an event of its own. He was a professional race car driver, working under the name P.L. Newman at events to draw attention away from his celebrity, and he was a charity entrepreneur. In 1981, Newman's own salad dressing first hit store shelves with 100% of the after-tax profits going to the actor's chosen charity foundations. The recipes were based on dressings Newman used to make at restaurants for himself and his friends. Eventually, he started bottling it and giving it away. When he partnered with writer A.E. Hockner, they found a company to produce larger quantities. But Newman had his own idea for distribution. He dropped 10,000 cases of the stuff off at New Haven, Connecticut deli staple Stu Leonard's and let business take care of itself. Today, Newman's Own makes salsa, popcorn, frozen pizzas, cookies, and a dozen other items, donating over $500 million to charity since its founding. Back to racing. Newman had a late start into racing, so he wasn't exactly Mario Andretti. But he wasn't just a famous hanger-on either. Far from it. He won his first Sports Car Club of America race in 1972, and four more between 1976 and 1986. He came in second at the 1979 24 Hours of Le Mans race, driving for Dick Barber Racing with Barber himself and German driver Rolf Stromelin. For Newman, the rubber on the road was a welcome respite from the bullshit of Hollywood, where everyone loves you until you're no longer making the money. Controlling a car, just you and the machine, is a lot different than acting or directing in a movie but it offers its own amount of satisfaction and accomplishment that a guy who had already reached the top of his profession could appreciate. 
In Mel Brooks's hilarious mid-70s comedy silent movie, Newman spoofed himself, getting chased around a hospital in a high-speed wheelchair race against Brooks, Marty Feldman, and Dom DeLuise. In 1977, Newman became a racing team owner himself, partnering with Bill Freeman. But a few years later, he hooked up with Carl Haas, who had been a supplier of cars and parts and a somewhat rival. With the promise that their driver would be none other than, yep, Mario Andretti, Newman and Haas joined the IndyCar circuit and became one of the most successful teams of the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Drivers for the team included not only the elder Andretti, but his son Michael, British racer Nigel Mansell, and Frenchman Sebastian Bourdais, all of whom won championships under the Newman-Haas banner. Famously, the only checkered flag to elude them was at the Indianapolis 500. His involvement in and love for racing never abated, even while his acting and businesses continued at full force. He won his only Oscar in 1987 for Martin Scorsese's The Color of Money. During the filming of that movie, Newman took co-star Tom Cruise to Daytona, where both actors drove a couple of laps in a stock car. The experience allegedly inspired Cruise to make racing drama Days of Thunder, which was released in 1990. When he was 70 years old, Newman was part of the winning team at the 1995 24 Hours of Daytona race. In August of 2008, at the age of 83, Paul Newman took a few final laps in his GT1 Corvette at Lime Rock Park in his home state of Connecticut. A month later in September, he passed away of lung cancer, which he had been diagnosed with 18 months prior. His final on-screen role was, ironically, as a talking automobile playing the old, wise Doc Hudson in Pixar's first Cars movie. In 2015, a documentary entitled Winning, The Racing Life of Paul Newman explored the actor's racing career in detail. For anyone, leaving one legacy is an enviable task. Paul Newman left three unbelievable legacies that will doubtlessly never be matched in our lifetime. Calling him an actor who raced cars or started a charity business isn't even barely scratching the surface. He once told the Associated Press, quote, I don't like talking about acting because that's business and pretty boring, and politics can get you in trouble. But I'll always talk about racing because the people are interesting and fun. The sport is a lot more exciting than anything else I do, and nobody cares that I'm an actor. I wish I could spend all of my time at the racetrack, end quote. An occasional co-star of Paul Newman was Harold Gould, who not only left his mark on Hollywood with hundreds of screen credits, but also by spending years as an acting teacher. Born Harold Vernon Goldstein in Schenectady, New York in 1923, Gould was the valedictorian of his high school and a mortar gunner in World War II. When he returned from the war, he finished his studies at the Albany Teachers College and earned a Master's of Arts degree and doctorate in dramatic speech and literature in 1953 from Cornell University. His path, he thought, was teaching, and he conducted classes at Randolph-Macon Women's College in Virginia and at UC Riverside throughout the 50s. But at the beginning of the 60s, when he was in his late 30s, Gould decided to stop teaching and go into acting full-time, something his friends thought was risky. Quote, All of my colleagues would say, What are you doing? You're crazy to leave teaching. I had to take that leap. At first, he was like any other struggling actor, working as a part-time teacher at UCLA and as a studio security guard. But uncredited parts in a few movies led to bit parts, which led to supporting roles in 1963's The Yellow Canary, written by Rod Serling, 
and 1966's Harper, which starred Paul Newman. Where he really made headway was on television, where he showed up on practically every show shot throughout the decade, from sitcoms like Dennis the Menace, The Flying Nun, and Mr. Ed, to dramas like Dr. Kildare and The Fugitive, to westerns like The Virginian, Gunsmoke, and Wild Wild West, to action shows like The Man from U.N.C.L.E., Mission Impossible, and The Green Hornet, there wasn't a show or genre that Harold Gould didn't do. And they weren't all one-offs either. He did four episodes of Hogan's Heroes as three different German generals and four episodes of Hawaii Five-O as a villain who has a vendetta against Jack Lord Steve McGarrett. You want something here, McGarrett? Yeah, I wanted to arrest your son for attempted homicide and armed robbery, but maybe I better call in for an ambulance first. An ambulance won't help. He's dead. My son is dead, McGarrett. Dead, and you killed him. No, Vashon, no. I shot him. You killed him. You and his grandfather a long time ago. Kimo, take over. McGarrett dies. His big movie break came in 1973 in George Roy Hill's Oscar-winning masterpiece, The Sting. Gould played Kid Twist, the dapper and impeccably dressed conman that was an integral part of Newman and Redford's crew, out to get one over on Robert Shaw's greedy gangster. A big role in a big movie was a huge step up for Gould, whose prior credits had been supporting parts in B-pictures or larger roles in TV movies. He then graduated to comedies by Woody Allen and Mel Brooks, who cast Gould as the main villain in the previously mentioned silent movie. Seriously, that movie's hilarious. If you haven't seen it, please do. In a 1972 episode of anthology series Love American Style called Love and the Happy Days, Gould played father Howard Cunningham with Ron Howard as his son Richie. The episode was a hit and was to become the basis for a sitcom of its own. But a delayed production let Gould take a play in Europe. And when the show went to series, the role was recast with Tom Bosley as Mr. Cunningham a role he would embody for over 10 years. Decades later, Gould was philosophical about the missed opportunity. Quote, Those are painful decisions. On the other hand, I probably would have shot myself after two years. I need variety in my work. End quote. His biggest TV break came in 1972 on The Mary Tyler Moore Show, a place where a lot of actors had their big breaks. There he played Marty Morgenstern, father to Valerie Harper's Rhoda and husband to Nancy Walker's Ida. He continued the role when Rhoda was given her own spin-off show in 1974 and did 17 episodes over the next four seasons, earning an Emmy nomination for his work in 1978. Marty was an understanding, level-headed father, always ready to dole out advice, characteristics Gould would make his bread and butter for the better part of his career. Steady stream of roles continued into the 80s, which started with a trio of TV movies in which he played studio mogul Louis B. Mayer. He was nominated for another Emmy for his work in all three projects. He was also a regular on the short-lived sitcoms Foot in the Door and Spencer. Gould always believed the stage was his first love, starting there in summer stock in the 50s and returning to it throughout his life. He won an Obie Award for the off-Broadway show The Increased Difficulty of Concentration and also appeared in The House of Blue Leaves and Thornton Wilder's The Skin of Our Teeth. 
In the early 80s, he starred on Broadway in Neil Simon's Fools and in Grown Ups, written by Jules Pfeiffer and co-starring Bob Dishy, who would play another one of Rose Nyland's boyfriends, Mr. Terrific. But it was in 1985, in the show's first season, that Gould first entered the Golden Girls universe. Only it wasn't as Miles Weber. It was as Arnie Peterson in Rose the Prude, the series' third ever episode written by Barry Fanaro and Mort Nathan and directed by Jim Drake. Arnie is a nice guy, and he really clearly likes Rose very much. The reason she's such a prude is because she hasn't been close to a man since her husband Charlie died, and the way he died was in bed with her. So she's got some issues to work through, and she and Arnie hash them out in a cruise ship cabin. Betty White was nominated for an Emmy for Rose the Prude and won the award for Outstanding Lead Actress in a Comedy Series that year, the first Golden Girl to do so. All four actresses would win Emmys by the time the show's fourth season premiered. Gould would return to the show in season five's Dancing in the Dark. Rose meets college professor Miles Weber at ballroom dancing classes, but is intimidated to go out with him due to the obvious difference in their intelligence levels. A first date at Miles' house with all of his other college professor friends goes terribly for Rose. But Dorothy convinces her to try again with a sports metaphor. Honey, you know, anybody would feel out of her league in a room full of college professors. You should have a home field advantage. Why don't you invite them over here? Dorothy's right. We can create the illusion that you're interested. <laughs> it's a hell of an illusion. Maybe we should just saw her in half. During the date, a different sports joke illustrates the cultural differences between the two. Oh, listen, uh, Rose, I was wondering, if you're not busy Saturday afternoon, the university is playing Shostakovich. Oh, I'd love to go, and I'll bet we beat him. <laughs> Rose, honey, it's not a team, it's a composer. Oh, I better get the dessert. I thought I'd give you a hand with the dessert. What's wrong, Rose? It's not a team, Rose. It's a composer. Couldn't you pretend it was a team and make him look stupid? <laughs> but in the end, Miles assures Rose that he likes her because she's refreshingly different from anyone else he knows. So the two keep dancing together for the show's next three seasons. Writer Philip Jason Lasker said that giving Rose a steady boyfriend the only golden girl to have one throughout the show's run, made audiences happy because they liked seeing her happy. And having Miles be a more intellectual character gave the writers room to mine the contradictions between the two. Quote, By making Miles a college professor, we could explore how one's self-image affects a relationship, and whether love requires intelligence compatibility. We didn't know at this time that Miles would end up becoming a recurring character, but he and Betty, despite us saying the characters were so different, worked so well together as a couple, end quote. Miles shares a lot in common with the Golden Girls' other recurring male character, Stan's Bornak, played by Herb Edelman. While Miles is nerdy where Stan is schlubby, both guys like to think they're strong, manly men, only to realize that they need the support of the ladies in their lives. They're also both cheapskates, which is never not funny. But Miles was always sensitive, never selfish like Stan, and a lot of the sitcom situations between he and Rose came from one or the other worrying that they weren't good enough. Gould found the experience of working on the Golden Girls to be fun and relaxed, and enjoyed acting with the confident ladies on a tightly run show. 
about his scenes with his on-screen girlfriend, he said, quote, Betty in particular was a great person to be in a scene with. We'd often work out bits of business that we'd come up with together. And when we'd be outside the door waiting for our cue to enter, and we'd look at each other, you could see she was having fun, end quote. Betty White's only concern was her co-star's famous facial hair. Quote, The only worry I would have was that I always had to make sure my lipstick was all powdered down because I didn't want to get it on his nice white mustache. End quote. Gould would do a total of 13 Golden Girls episodes, all the way up to the show's fourth to last episode, Rose, Portrait of a Woman. That run includes a subplot we've talked about before, in which Miles is discovered to actually be Nicholas Carbone, a one-time mob accountant from Chicago that turned state's evidence against his former clients, necessitating enrollment in the Witness Protection Program and a new life as an Amish man named Samuel Plankmaker. Miles eventually returned to Miami full-time in Season 7, and the whole saga was never mentioned again. It is a shame that Harold Gould's Miles never got to meet Nancy Walker's Aunt Angela, reuniting Rhoda's parents in Miami. As we said in Episode 24, Gould enjoyed being able to drop in and out of the Golden Girls because it allowed him to do other projects. One of those was Singer and Sons, a very short-lived sitcom Gould starred in alongside B. Arthur's one-time Maud co-star, Esther Roll. Another was a TV movie Mrs. Delafield Wants to Marry, in which he was nominated for an Emmy for his work alongside the legendary Katharine Hepburn. After his time on the Golden Girls, Gould settled into a diverse array of old man roles, many of which were listed in their respective credits as Grandpa. He played Grandpa Spencer in the first Stuart Little movie, opposite Estelle Getty, Grandpa Disguisey in the awful Master of Disguise, and just Grandpa in the 2003 remake of Freaky Friday. Once, he played Albert Einstein in an episode of Touched by an Angel. He also remained on stage, and in 2006, at 82 years old, he joined the national touring company of the play Tuesdays with Morty, based on the national bestseller by pint-sized sports writer and schmaltzmeister Mitch Albom. His last two roles were in a short film called The Day the Music Died, and an episode of FX's Nip Tuck, in which he played a Holocaust survivor keeping a horrifying secret. In September of 2010, seven months after that episode of Nip Tuck aired, Harold Gould passed away of prostate cancer at the age of 86. He was never the star. To most people, he was the quintessential that guy, an actor whose name you might not know, but whose face you have absolutely seen someplace before, perhaps in a few things. He might not be the first character you remember from the Golden Girls, but Miles was a welcome addition to the show, and Harold Gould was so comfortable and consistent in the role that it seemed like he was there the entire time, and the show wouldn't have been the same without him. Believe it or not, there are a couple of more racing references from the Golden Girls. The Manja Cavallo Curse Makes a Lousy Wedding Present was another Philip Jason Lasker episode from Season 5. The girls are all set to go to a big wedding of a couple of family friends who we've never heard about before. But while Sophia is looking forward to sticking it to the grandfather of the groom, who stood her up at the altar many years before, Dorothy wants to borrow a date from Blanche's prize collection, and she won't give up until she's got him. Oh, Dorothy, let me get you somebody hot off my A-list. Somebody tall, good-looking, goes with everything. <laughs> Doug? How about an ex-race car driver? Speaks five languages, has three car dealerships. Has a slight limp so he can only dance in a circle, but that works at a wedding. <laughs> Doug. 
Got an anesthesiologist, but you won't feel anything. Doug. All right, Doug. But listen, don't you forget, you be careful. This man is on loan from the Blanche Devereaux collection. After that, Blanche and Dorothy end up fighting over Doug at the wedding, while he sneaks off with Rose, who gets very excited when she's at weddings. And Sophia gets some small measure of revenge against Giuseppe Mangiacavallo, who was played by actor Howard Duff, the one-time radio voice of Dashiell Hammett's famous detective Sam Spade. Like Harold Gould, Duff was a frequent guest star on every TV show Under the Sun for decades, along with a few movie roles such as in Kramer vs. Kramer and No Way Out. He was also married to actress and director Ida Lupino, and the two starred in a few episodes of Batman as Dr. Cassandra and her henchman Kabbalah. His appearance on The Golden Girls was one of his final roles, and he passed away of a heart attack in 1990. The Manja curse makes a lousy wedding present is a ridiculous title, and according to Philip Jason Lasker, B. Arthur hated it. Quote, I remember one time, right after we finished a table read for an episode, it could have been this one, that B. muttered aloud to herself, do you bring in someone to come up with these lousy titles? I was sitting right across from her and I said, B., that's my title. This is where B's brutal honesty came in, and I loved her for it. She said, I'm sorry I hurt your feelings, but it's a lousy title. End quote. Finally, we have another long title, The Case of the Libertine Bell, which was the second episode of the show's final season and was written by Tom Whedon. Blanche has organized a murder mystery weekend for her co-workers, and Dorothy is more excited than anyone lapsing into the kind of speech that Howard Duff used to deliver as Sam Spade. Is there any chance I could persuade you girls to join me for a murder mystery weekend? Blanche, are you kidding? I have read every word Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler ever wrote. Now, Sam Spade and then Philip Marlowe have become a part of me. She had more curves than the Monaco Grand Prix and was twice as dangerous. Her jewelry was mute testimony that Charlie Chaplin wasn't the only tramp who hit it big in this town. You do this on first dates, don't you, Dorothy? The mystery weekend ends up with Blanche, of all people, being accused of murder, and Dorothy playing the role of the entire Scooby gang to prove her innocence. The triple crown of motorsports are the Monaco GP, the Indianapolis 500, and the 24 Hours of Le Mans. Established in 1929, the Monaco GP remains one of, if not the most prestigious race in the world. The 161-mile race winds through the streets and tunnels of Monaco, taking over the entire city-state every May. Although it's shorter than every other Formula One event, its narrow course makes it extremely difficult it doesn't leave much room for passing, which some drivers have vocally complained about. But the race is only one small part of the draw of Monaco. The continental location is known as a place where the rich and famous play, and that goes double for when the race is on. A fashion show and auction the night before the qualifying runs carries a $600 entry fee. You may run into a supermodel or two, or maybe even Tom Brady, on a yacht the day of the race. A four-night stay in a hotel overlooking the course could run you over $75,000. But if things get too crazy, you can always stay at a lounge with a nearby helipad and spend four grand to take a short hop over to the airport in Nice, France. On second thought, maybe you're better off just watching it at home on ESPN. 
I have to confess, I'm not a big fan of auto racing. New Yorkers have a wealth of pro teams to choose from, so racing just isn't that big a deal in this part of the country, even if we're in the minority. I am a big fan of Paul Newman, and he's long been my favorite actor. I've seen a ton of his movies, even some on his small list of stinkers. One of those was When Time Ran Out, a disaster movie set on an erupting volcano which was also directed by James Goldstone, the same guy who made Winning. One time Golden Girls Elvis Quentin Tarantino said he'd rather saw his fingers off than watch Winning again. I could tell him that When Time Ran Out makes Winning look like Reservoir Dogs. It's awful. Seriously, it is terrible. But one of the remarkable things about Newman's remarkable career is that most of his movies were very good, if not all-time classics. And the thing I love most is that in a lot of them, his characters are usually unbelievable assholes. Guys like Fast Eddie Felsen, Hud Bannon, and Reggie Dunlop should be among the least likable people ever depicted on screen. But there's something about the way Newman played them that makes them not only compelling, but weirdly likable. It's a feat very, very few actors have ever been able to pull off. The opposite can almost be said about Harold Gould, who spent a lifetime playing instantly likable old men. His face was so sincere and his voice so calming and his mustache so mesmerizing that you couldn't not trust him even when he was supposed to be the villain. You can see why audiences liked seeing Rose dating him. He just seemed like such a nice guy. So what if he liked hanging out at Thimble Museums? Next time on Golden Girls Sports, we go back to baseball, but this time with Scandal. Golden Girls Sports is written, produced, and narrated by Dan Saracini. The theme is Golden Sunrise, instrumental version by Josh Woodward, and is available at freemusicarchive.org. Visit goldengirlsportspodcast.com for show notes and references, and follow us on Twitter at Golden Girls SP. Thanks for listening. <laughs>